This episode of Edge of Sports is brought to you by Harry's Razors, a great shave at a fraction of the drugstore price. Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase with promo code EDGE. Go to harrys.com right now and make sure you use code EDGE at checkout to let them know who sent you. Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Heavy hearts over here after the passing of Prince. We're going to be speaking about that a great deal on the show. Our central guest, though, is New York Times bestselling author, columnist, and founder of The Intercept, Glenn Greenwald. People may know him through his revelation of Edward Snowden's leaks about the NSA, but Glenn Greenwald also lives in Rio, site of the 2016 Olympics, and has been writing blistering pieces about the current Brazilian political crisis, and I want to speak to him about how that crisis intersects with the coming Olympics. And we are going to pay tribute to Prince, because, man, that one cuts deep. But first, thrilled to have him on the line, one of the most prominent journalists of our time, Glenn Greenwald. The Olympics are coming, and what is happening to President Rousseff, you and others have described as a judicial or even political coup. That's obviously very strong language. How how do you justify that? I personally haven't used the word coup just because it ends up provoking this unhelpful semantic debate about whether a coup requires the military forcibly invading a presidential palace and physically removing a leader, or whether or not it can actually be accomplished, as in the case of Brazil, through parliamentary and judicial action. So for me, what what I've said and what I firmly believe is that what this is is a subversion of democracy. It's an attack on democracy. Whether you want to call it a coup or not, to me, just seems like a, an irrelevant semantic debate. The government's certainly calling it a coup. But what it is, is it's an attempt by people who cannot defeat the party of the workers, the PT party, in an election, they have tried desperately and failed four straight times to now remove the president, who was just reelected 18 months ago with 54 million votes, to remove her from office in the expectation that the people who in the past would have been in the streets not allowing it, this time won't care because of how unpopular she's become. So that's what I see it as. Mm. Now, you have these judicial investigations. I know you've been following them closely. I have as well. They've also gone after some wealthy people, uh, people who are part of those traditional oligarchical families in Brazil. Executives from some of Brazil's biggest corporations are under investigation I mean, on the face of it, you could see why some would say that this looks like the strengthening of democracy, but that, but that's not the case. Well, for a long time, I was actually pretty supportive of the Lava Jato investigation for exactly the reason that you just said, which is that, as is true in the U.S. and in most Western European countries, but has been even more true in Brazil, there's this entitlement of immunity. If you're sufficiently rich and sufficiently powerful, you can literally commit the worst crimes and not go to prison. That's been the history of Brazil. Of course, it's been the history in the U.S., too. I mean, the people who caused the 2008 financial collapse, Mm -hmm. um, the people who implemented a worldwide system of torture, who put people in prison for years without 
trial or who eavesdrop without warrants, none of them was ever held accountable. But in Brazil, it's been this really extreme version. So to see actual billionaires and actual leaders of political parties who have a lot of power being carted off to prison for corruption and for bribery and for kickbacks at the public expense was actually a really positive thing. And and I interviewed um, the ex-president of Brazil, uh, Lula da Silva, about three weeks ago in Sao Paulo, and I asked him that, isn't this a positive aspect? And he, as critical as he's been of the process, agreed that this has been a great thing to see. The problem is that it has now been converted from what it was, which was this apolitical exercise of subjecting everybody equally to the rule of law into this witch hunt that is politicized and designed to achieve purely political objectives. And once things started happening, like the judge in charge of the investigation ordering Lula detained for no Mm -hmm. reason other than to make a public spectacle and ordering his telephone lines to be recorded and then releasing his personal calls that had no relationship to anything in the public interest the same day that the judge got them, it became very evident that this had turned into something really improper and and was an abuse of judicial power rather than an upholding of it. And was that the crossing of the Rubicon for you? When the judge, uh, it was. Had I had actually refrained from. I mean, I had some concerns as I was watching this unfold, but I was generally supportive. On balance, I thought it was a net positive for Brazil that that it was a, a a reflection of these maturing democratic institutions, even more impressive even than what the U.S. and a lot of Western European countries have. Mm-hmm. And I still think there's a positive aspect to that. I still think some of these judges and prosecutors have been well motivated and actually quite brave. But I actually think that it has now become a net negative because it poses a serious threat to the fundamental institutions of democracy that Brazil has been able to construct only over the past 30 years since they left military dictatorship in 1985. And I'm still stunned by this figure that uh, you published in The Intercept from the Toronto Globe and Mail that 318 of the 594 members of the Congress um, are actually under investigation or facing charges and Rousseff, I mean, President Dilma, she seems like she's one of the cleaner people in the room. If you, It's amazing. If you look at how the Brazilian media covers this scandal, it's so radically different than how the international media has covered it because the Brazilian media is dominated and controlled by a tiny handful of extremely rich families who have waged a war on, on the PT for a long time. And the information that they allow to be in, getting into the public is very constrained and very limited. So if you read international news outlets like the Globe and Mail and even the New York Times and the Guardian, they'll constantly point out the extremely amazing fact that most of the people who are pursuing Doma's investigation are charged with extremely serious acts of personal corruption, bribery, and hiding millions of dollars in Swiss bank accounts and the like, whereas Doma herself is not. And what this underscores is the key point, which is that the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff is being carried out in the name of corruption and rooting out corruption and punishing corruption, but it's really intended to achieve the exact opposite goal. What their plan is, what their hope is, is that once they impeach Dilma, there will be this huge public catharsis, like, oh, we, we just did this amazing act. We got rid of our corrupt president. The media will stop caring about corruption because they've gotten rid of PT. And then the newly empowered factions in Brasilia who are 
filled and led by the most corrupt politicians you've ever encountered in your life will be able to use their newfound power and the media indifference to basically put an end to the investigation. So the point is not to punish corruption. It's really to protect corruption and to shield those who are truly corrupt from further accountability. Now, the United States, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like they've been largely quiet publicly during all of this. What's the role in the United States and what's going on? And what is the relationship between the United States, the State Department, and Dilma's administration? It's interesting because the role of the United States in Brazil is an extremely, extremely sensitive topic. And that's because in 1964, Brazil had an elected left-wing government, democratically elected, just like it did now, does now, um, that the United States disliked. And in 1964, the Brazilian military carried out a coup where they forcibly removed those leaders and then imposed a very brutal dissent-destroying military dictatorship on this country for the next 20 years. They were without democracy and the right to dissent, any of the basic civil rights under this military junta. And for years, the United States publicly vehemently denied any involvement, and then some documents got declassified, which proved that actually the U.S. actively plotted the coup with Brazilian military officials and oligarchs here in Brazil, including the owner of the biggest news outlet still, which is the Global News Organization, and then supported that right-wing military dictatorship for the next 20 years, including even helping them train in really horrible techniques of torture, which they used on a whole variety of dissidents, including Dilma herself, who back then was a dissident and, and a very subversive activist against the military regime. She was in prison for three years and tortured at the hands of the U.S.-supported military regime. So the U.S. can't do anything that even hints at what looks like any kind of involvement in the uprooting of another left-wing government after what they did in the 1960s and then through the 1980s. But it's no secret that the U.S. has started to look at the Workers' Party with a lot of negative sentiment, in part because they're more redistributive than the U.S. likes. Lula himself forged some foreign policies that were, in the eyes of the U.S., adverse to U.S. interests, including reaching a deal along with Turkey and Iran for a nuclear agreement at the time the U.S. was trying to isolate Iran. And then the economy and the mismanagement by Dilma has made Brazil really unwelcome to hedge funds and venture capital and a whole variety of um, other capital organs that for a long time saw Brazil as a really great new potential area of growth. And so they, the U.S. clearly wants a change of government, but they're being very stealth about whatever involvement they might have. Now, you mentioned uh, Dilma and the fact that as a young woman, she was tortured. Please tell me, I, I misheard this. Please tell me I did not get this right when I was reading my Brazilian news. But when a member of Congress voted for her impeachment, did he dedicate his vote to her torturer? Did that really happen? Not only did that happen, but this was not just some random member of Congress who did it. You know, the, the lower house of the Brazilian Congress is roughly the same size as the U.S. Congress. So it's not like this is just some random fringe person who you find in the U.S. House who is liable to say anything. This is a very prominent right-wing member of Congress. His name is Jair Bolsonaro who is widely expected to run for president of the country, either in 2018 when Dilma's term expires or if there are new elections prior to that, who currently not only is around 9 or 10% of the polls, but a recent poll, very credible poll, found that he is the preferred candidate 
of the richest sector of Brazil, the highest income sector of Brazil. He is an open admirer of the military dictatorship. He wants a return of, of the military dictatorship. He was in the military during that coup. His son, um, Eduardo Bolsonaro, is also a member of Congress, and his son, who, went, who spoke before him, when he stood up to cast his vote in favor of impeachment, he said, I'm casting my vote in honor of the military men of 64, meaning mm. the people who engineered the coup. And then when his father stood up and, and cast his pro-impeachment vote, as you said, he cast his vote explicitly in honor of the colonel who was in charge of the regime of torture, who personally was responsible for Dilma's torture. He named her, uh, he named him, um, and said that he was casting his vote in his memory. So the Olympics, which were supposed to be like the crowning glory of Lula and the Workers' Party, it was Lula who secured the Olympics for Rio, now it looks like they could be almost like this coronation for whoever the new leadership of Brazil is going to be. Are there concerns about how the Olympics could be used? It's really fascinating. I know you've written a lot about the economic inequities that come from places that are suffering and struggling economically, getting the Olympics and specifically came to Brazil and did reporting on a lot of the suffering that it's causing in Brazil. At the time that Lula secured the rights to the Olympics, Brazil was feeling so great about itself. Mm -hmm. There was massive economic growth. You know, the joke in Brazil has always been that Brazil is the country of the future, and it always will be. Um, And yet this is the first time that people thought that the promise of Brazil was really coming to fruition. Tens of millions of people were lifted out of poverty. Lula left office in 2010 with an 86% approval rating. So when they secured the Olympics, most people found it to be this source of immense pride because it was the first South American city ever to host the Olympics. And since then, the economy has cratered. There's all kinds of crises here, including a health crisis with the Zika virus that has not been managed well at all. There's obviously a major political crisis that is causing serious instability. Whether Dilma will survive through the Olympics or not is an open question. It may take a while in the Senate for the impeachment trial to wind its way through Brazil's political process. But Brazil has, on top of its uh, major problems, they're extremely behind in the building of, of the Olympic commitments that they made. And people are starting to realize that as their children literally have no teachers in school and people are now being threatened with hunger again, they've had to spend billions of dollars on this infrastructure for the Olympics that will serve no public good once the Olympics are over. Um, and just, I don't know if you heard, but there was this major story where in Rio, the bike path. The, yeah, the, they Ugh. built this really prominent, flamboyant bicycle path that went along the tourist beach, where all the tourists and journalists are going to come on Ipanema Beach in Lebanon, um, and it sort of hung on this kind of road, this beachside road. And it just got inaugurated and opened in January, so three months ago. They spent many tens of millions of dollars to build it. It was going to be one of the crowning jewels of improving Rio for the Olympics. And for reasons that are still unclear, three months after it opened, out of nowhere, a wave came, hit it, and it collapsed and killed at least two bikers who were biking on it. Just the whole thing collapsed. And that has become a metaphor for this country and and for the Olympics, which is, you know, it took on this major, major commitment, um, has seen a huge transfer in taxpayer funds to corrupt builders and construction companies for very little public good. Mm. Now... 
do people um, in Rio, when they speak about this and, and their anger about that as a metaphor and, oh, we're spending money on the Olympics and we have all these other problems, does blame for that when people talk about it shift towards the Workers' Party or does it shift towards Mayor Pius, who's from the, the competing party? The PMDB, yeah. Yeah, CMDB. Who, who, where, where does the blame flow? The anger about the Olympics is a little bit tempered by the fact that people remember that virtually nobody objected when Brazil won that bid. In fact, as I said, it became a source of collective national pride. It was celebratory, the mood, in Rio specifically and in in Brazil more generally. So I think that the idea of blaming Lula for something that the entire country supported, even given the hypocrisy of populations in general, um, you know, I think if you go back and look, for example, at polls during the Iraq War, something like 70% of the people mm-hmm. supported the invasion of Iraq. But if you say now, did you support the invasion of Iraq? I think only like 35% of the population admits to it. You know, and they're not lying. They probably have convinced themselves that they opposed it in retrospect. So I, there, there, is, there is some anger, just all the anger that Brazilians harbor. And it, there is a lot of anger because they really believe that they were finally on the right path. And it just got all taken away from them. Most of it does get directed to the Workers' Party because they've been in charge of the levers of power for 14 years. But if you look at the reaction, for example, to that collapsed bicycle path, that anger is getting directed to the mayor of, of Rio, Eduardo Paiz, because that was his project. And there was a lot of nepotism involved in that project, it turns out. There were a lot of campaign donors who got some of those contracts. And I think it's going to become a major, major scandal for him. It really is just kind of illustrative of the way that Brazil has been functioning, mm-hmm. which is such oozing corruption to the point where nothing works and the public pays. We'll be back in just a quick moment with Glenn Greenwald, but first, a quick word from Harry's Razors. I had one of those mornings Saturday where I had to do a TV spot, and I woke up and I just had like hair coming out of my neck, hair coming out of my cheeks in big tufts, and I needed to shave and I needed to not hurt. And I did it with confidence because I had a Harry's Razor. It is smooth, it is sleek, and it leaves my face going from being the werewolf to feeling like a baby's bottom. Now, Harry now has a starter set called the Truman. It's a great option for new customers and an amazing deal. For just $15, you get a razor handle, moisturizing, shaving cream, and three of Harry's five-blade German-engineered razors. Plus, there's a special offer for fans of the show. Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase with promo code EDGE. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. And make sure you use code EDGE at checkout to let them know who sent you. And when you use Harry's razors, guess what? You support this show, Edge of Sports. And now, back to The Intercept's Glenn Greenwald. You've been a firebrand journalist for years, overwhelmingly focused on the United States and uh, the NSA and, and, and privacy issues and civil liberties. And you, you didn't really write or speak about politics in Brazil and, and now you are. Uh, what, what's that transition been like? And have you, has it subjected you to more attention at home? It's interesting because, I mean, par- I, I, I always enjoyed the fact that I didn't cover Brazilian politics very much so that I had at least one country where I could just sort of live in peace and tranquility and mm-hmm. not be involved in, in their political wars. It did change somewhat because of the NSA reporting that I did in 2013 and 2014 that involved Brazil, and I was in Brazilian, the Brazilian media a lot. But it wasn't very controversial in Brazil. Brazilians overwhelmingly were favorable to that reporting. 
So it wasn't very controversial. Um, what it really changed is just, you know, if you live in a country for 11 years and you choose to live there, you, you obviously you have a, a, an affection and a, and a love for that country or you wouldn't live there. And I do, and it's been an amazing thing to watch Brazil transform from this kind of classic third-world country into this booming democracy that was lifting people out of poverty and had all this promise, all of which was rooted in this strong, healthy democracy. And now to watch it in front of my face under attack by people who have no interest whatsoever in the welfare of the vast majority of the country, which are the oligarchs and the wealthiest, but who are exploiting them and their sentiments and their anger in order to get power and then do nothing good for them. And more so to watch a media in this country that's so tightly concentrated in terms of ownership in the hands of this tiny elite so I could see that none of the information that was necessary for the Brazilian public to have was actually reaching them because the dominant media here is just so manipulated and so deceitful and so propagandistic. I felt like I really didn't have a choice. I know I have this platform that gets heard you know, in a lot of countries, certainly including Brazil. I have this new media organization that we founded a few years ago to fill the gaps that we felt like the international media was failing to fill in terms of their duty. And so it really wasn't much of a choice. I felt just a genuine obligation. And it is the case that for the first time, I'm under lots of attack um, in Brazil, the country where I've chosen to live. And the reporting has become really controversial here. But at the same time, it's been really gratifying because, you know, I felt like we have actually fulfilled a huge hole that had been missing that not many people were able to fulfill you know, you have to have the knowledge of Brazil, you have to have the platform that gets mm-hmm. heard, and you have to have the resources to do it. And so I felt like we've been able to perform an important service. And not work for Globo. Right, and not be at one of these places where you're really tightly controlled in terms of what you're allowed to say. How do you feel like The Intercept's going? Uh, next projects on the horizon, anything you want to say about The Intercept uh, for our listeners? I mean, we're just, we're so thrilled. I mean, you know, our, our, the difficulty we had when we first started in terms of figuring out who we wanted to be and how we wanted to do it, we're pretty well publicized. Um, and that makes, you know, the fact that we found our way all the more gratifying. And, you know, we set out to try and figure out how to combine this independent adversarial journalistic ethos with a really well-financed, highly-resourced backing that we could turn into a a serious news organization that wouldn't have the kind of corporate ethos that most do that are well-funded, but that would keep this independent adversarial ethos. And we feel like we're now providing journalism we're we're really proud of and and we're ready to expand based on that solid foundation. And it's super exciting. Yeah, it's a go-to site for so many of us. A listener to the podcast, Brent Borg, wanted me to ask you uh, what thoughts you have on Edward Snowden's proposed trip to Norway to accept an award. Uh, Do you feel like it's, it's, it's risky? Are you worried about him at all? I doubt he would go unless he gets extremely rock-solid assurances from Norway that he'll be given safe passage. I don't even see how Norway could guarantee that. Remember when the U.S. in 2013 thought that the plane of of Evo Morales uh, was carrying um, Snowden? They actually forced the plane down, um, even though he's the president of a sovereign country. Um, So they're clearly willing to use force in order to get him. I think it's more symbolic on the part of international pen, which is saying we've, we're giving him a freedom of expression award, and the Norwegian government should not be captive to the U.S. and should give him safe tra- uh, passage to travel. But unless he has 100% security assurances, which I don't see how he can get, I doubt he would actually do it. Mm. And last question for you. I'd be remiss if I just 
didn't ask you about Prince, the passing of Prince. Uh, what did Prince mean to you? Uh, and what was your reaction when you heard he died? I mean, I grew up, you know, pretty much came of age at the time when Prince became a, a huge figure in, in music. And I think one of the things that music does for people is it provides this alternative means of expression beyond what society and, and sort of its most mainstream institutions offers you. Um, I think that's why the reaction to David Bowie was so strong, because a lot of people found the ability to express themselves through his music. And that was certainly true of Prince. And I think especially for people who grew up gay as I did or... Um, you know, in any other way feeling kind of excluded or isolated uh, from mainstream values. And a musician like Prince, who was just so free and just so creative in his expression, ended up having a really important role to play in your life. And then the other, the other thing I would mention about him is that it's really kind of unknown is that he was a really aggressive advocate of animal rights and, in fact, was a vegan, strictly on, on the grounds of animal rights. And, you know, he was just a really fascinating person and, and somebody who obviously thought a lot about the world and his obligations to it. This will be the day that you will hear me say Glenn Greenwald, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. Great talking to you, Dave. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Glenn Greenwald. It was great to have you on. You could read more of Glenn's stuff over at TheIntercept.com. And now is the part of the show that I call Choice Words, where I read a column from The Nation magazine that I've written in the last week. People can find a link to the column if you want to read along over at the description of this podcast. But please keep in mind, sometimes I go off on tangents from what you're going to see on the page. And this week, guess what I wrote about? I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count. I wrote about Prince. I went to college in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Prince is near and dear to me. So this is what I wrote. Look, first thing you got to understand is that everyone in the Twin Cities has a story about Prince. I was an 18-year-old college student from the hinterlands of New York City. New York Hick is what they called me, because I didn't really know much outside the five boroughs. And I think the only music I brought with me to college were some rap mixtapes and, like, the best of Robert Cray. And my Prince knowledge really began and ended with When Doves Cry. But I quickly caught that if I was going to survive in the Twin Cities, I was going to have to get Prince. And the first thing I learned was that everyone had a story about Prince. You heard them on each and every Friday night when the local movie house called The Uptowner played Purple Rain at midnight. And everyone dressed up like they were Wendy and Lisa or Mickey Free or some member of the revolution. You heard these stories about Prince 
in the basement rock shows. If you were seeing a punk band, a hip-hop band, or a ska band, they always close their sets by doing their own tripped-out versions of Little Red Corvette or I Would Die For You. You heard them in the cafeteria of the damn school. I remember hearing from a classmate who was there from Chicago, and she said without shame and actually with some pride that she chose our school just to meet His Purple Highness. Now, the stories were always unreal. They were always about the ways in which a young man reinvented soul in the coldest and in more ways than one whitest part in the United States. There he was, we were told. A teenager riding his motorcycle in the rain, buck naked through the heart of downtown while playing his guitar. Or the story I heard about the time that he just shredded his axe while standing in the audience during someone else's whack-ass show. And then everyone in the crowd, including the performers on stage, turned to him just to watch him play in the middle of the crowd. Not even believing that this kid was like 16 years old, just slaying an entire audience and bringing them to him from the middle of a packed show. And then I, there were the there were the sex stories too. You heard these all the time. The one that just to me always stuck was stories just about him throwing orgies back at his big purple mansion and somehow getting everyone to get freaky while barely saying a word and keeping his own damn clothes on. And these stories are crazy. Uh, Talib Kweli, who's um, a hip-hop artist, he told this wild story from a couple years ago about Prince renting out a club at 2 o'clock in the morning, throwing all the dudes out of the club. So it was just him and Talib left, filled with all the women who were there. And then he just read the Bible to him for 90 minutes. And that, that, that was until 3.30. And that was it. Look, I don't know which of these stories are true and which aren't true. But as a friend of mine at college, he said, you ever notice how Prince stories are always the best stories? And it's true. They were always the best stories. And what it compelled us to do was not just try to understand Prince, but to listen to every song, every note, to try to understand the secret of what made him so electric and magnetic to everybody in town. And it really didn't take long to figure it out. Prince's secret, the secret of what hypnotized people, was because it's like he had a key to a kingdom, but you could only have access to that key if you were willing to expand your own horizons and be better than the person you were. If you were a man and wanted to really get with what Prince was all about, you had to learn to drop the macho bluster, get sensitive, clean up, and maybe find a little bit of style. If you were white, you'd better find your soul. If you were black, you needed to accept that rock and roll was not white music, but your own heritage. 
If you were a woman, you needed to be a little bit more of a badass than maybe you were raised to be. And if you were a multiracial American drawing your heritage from a mix of people from all over the world, then Prince was telling you to not find that mix confusing, but liberating. Now, the other part that was so such an education in learning about Prince was learning all the songs that he'd written that I had no idea growing up that were Prince songs. I mean, the obvious one people always talk about is stuff like Manic Monday, which Prince wrote, uh, apparently because he wanted to meet Susanna Hoffs, the lead singer. So he wrote the Bangles, their biggest hit song. You know, that's a nice way to meet somebody. Or, you know, Nothing Compares to You, Sinead O'Connor. But the one that really bugged me out was a song that uh, growing up always was like, like, it was like my high school heart song. And I had no idea Prince wrote it. It's uh, When You Were Mine from the Dirty Mind album that Cindy Lauper just slayed on the She's So Unusual album. And there's, there's that line where he says, uh, when you were mine, you were kind of sort of my best friend. I mean, that doesn't even rhyme, but that's how dope Prince was. The only other person I've ever seen who's been able to do that is like Chuck D. Is like, it's just, you have so much authority, so much swag, so much skill. You don't even have to rhyme. And it actually, what it does is it just breaks your heart. It's like, no, this doesn't rhyme. It just breaks your heart. Now, my senior year, I knew I was not long for the Twin Cities. I, I had to get back out east so I wanted to see as many shows as possible at the club that made Prince famous. It's called First Avenue. And that meant I saw a lot of Morris Day in the Time shows because they were always cycling through. I even had a little hat with a clock on it that said, The Time. And on the back it said, You know what time it is? Like I had a Morris Day at the Time baseball cap. Yes, I did. I, I've been watching you. And I would go to Morris Day and listen to him do the same six songs and bring the house down every time. Now, my last time there, I was hanging in the back and this wall of a man walked by me. He looked like King Kong Bundy with a tan and a Tom Selleck mustache. And behind him, about three feet back, was some other dude who looked like his twin. I remember thinking to myself, dang, is the Minnesota Vikings offensive line here or something like that? But then in between these two mammoth condominiums with legs was this little dude with his head just above their waist. And that was Prince. Not the legend, just some flesh and bone guy, barely more than five feet tall. Now, in the 20 years since, I'll tell you, like I've met Danny DeVito, I've met Lionel Messi, and I got to say, I've never met a man that short of stature with that kind of scary, almost unsettling charisma. He was fireworks. He was art. He was the drugs that Nancy Reagan told you not to take. They stopped in front of me, and I couldn't help myself. I said, excuse me, um, um, and Prince looked at me and blinked twice, and I said, are you Prince? And he said, yes. 
blinked a couple times, and I needed a witty follow-up. So I said, yeah, you're Prince. I mean, I was playing a fool. And Prince blinked twice more, smiled, and said, that was nice. And then, as a searing single electric guitar note was being held behind my ears, just I heard it, he was gone. Just like that. Too beautiful for my world, now too beautiful for this one. And now for my Just Stand Up Award. You know who gets it? Prince. He gets a Just Stand Up Award for the 2007 halftime show at the Super Bowl. And I want to tell you why. Remember, the halftime show at the Super Bowl is the worst gig in all of music. I mean, it's high publicity, low music value, and you end up being endlessly mocked for it. Just ask Katy Perry and the Dancing Dolphin. Now... If you remember the recent history of the halftime show, 2004, Janet Jackson had her boob exposed by Justin Timberlake for reasons that I just can't understand. The entire backlash for that fell on Janet Jackson and not Justin Timberlake. But the main point is that after that 2004 Super Bowl, they started doing the old fogies tour for halftime. They did not want to risk in any way, shape or form having a young artist up there do something scandalous. So they trotted out the classic rock, one after the other, 2005, 2006. I mean, you needed to have some sort of heart monitor or medical alert bracelet if you were going to get up on that stage at halftime. And in 2007, they invited Prince. And I am completely convinced, completely, that they asked Prince because at the time he was 47 years old and they thought to themselves, this is another older generation guy who we can count on. Not some younger generation confangled hop with their hippity hoppity consarnate blah 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 blah. So, I mean, that's my impression of Roger Goodell. Blah, 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 blah. So, what does Prince do? First of all, they made a big mistake because Prince is timeless. He has no age. Second of all, remember, I'm sure Prince was upset about how they did Janet wrong. Because remember, Janet Jackson comes from that Minneapolis sound in terms of her stardom. Remember, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, the Control album, that whole thing, that was for Janet, and that was Prince's sound. And Prince got up there at halftime, and obviously he killed it. We know that. When he did Purple Rain with the rain falling down, I mean, the halftime show overshadowed the Super Bowl. It was unreal. Best halftime show performance, bar none. But the thing about it that he also did, if you look back, is that He held up his guitar behind a sheet and there was a big shadow making it look like he had this massive phallus of a guitar while playing Purple Rain. And the NFL is such a place where men's sexuality is taboo. I think it's pretty obvious why the sport is incredibly uh, homoerotic and yet you have to deny that there's any sort of hint of homoeroticism in all the rolling around that people do. And all that good-natured male bonding going on. So you got Prince, though, actually bringing male sexuality to the Super Bowl. And it's hard to imagine anything more transgressive than that. And I got to tell you this, too. I was on MSNBC on Sunday talking about this very subject. Speaking about Prince's halftime show at the Super Bowl. And they put up the clip online of me speaking about Prince and sports. That's what I was there to talk about. But they cut the clip 
before we talked about the halftime performance. And I think they cut the clip because it's still too incendiary to discuss what Prince was doing at that Super Bowl in 2007. He's still too hot for these square fools. Prince will always be too hot for these square fools. And that's why he gets the Just Stand Up Award. And the thing about Prince is that he's not saying you're either on your side or my side, pick a side. He's saying, doesn't my side look delicious? And wouldn't you have a hell of a lot more fun over here? And that's why Prince will always make me not just stand up, but try to do some splits and stand up again. That's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much, Dan Bloom, my producer. Thank you to everybody at the Panoply Network. Thank you, Glenn Greenwald. Thank you, Prince. And I'll tell you something. If you want to catch uh, last week's show, it's something we're really proud of. We talked to Isabel Tier, who's a Georgetown student-athlete fighting Nike, and W. Kamau Bell, whose show, United Shades of America, just debuted on CNN. So please go to edgesportspodcast.com and you can check out all the back shows. You can contact me always on Twitter at Edge of Sports or at Edge of Sports at Slate.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and now, we're very happy to say, Google Play Music. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>